Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. For our time of study this morning, I want to look at a passage in Romans 1. Now, why I want to do this because I want to correct what I said when we went through the book of Romans. Okay? I want to make some changes here. You know, people often ask me, when are you going to write a book? This is why I don't. I keep changing my mind. I mean, I'm learning every day, it seems like. I'm learning new stuff, and it's like, you know, I don't want to have to, you know, if I published a book, it'd be worth nothing in a couple months because I'd be past that, you know. So when I ever figure out what I believe, maybe, all right? But <laughs> So I want to look at Romans 1 this morning, particularly verses 19 through 23, because this section is known among theologians as the classic passage on natural theology. But my question is, is Paul teaching in this passage that all men are without excuse before God because of what is revealed in creation? Let's look at the text. John just read this. But that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what is made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Now, let me ask you something. Can man come to know God through nature? As man looks at the creation, he's standing at a majestic mountain range, admiring the mountains, or he's diving under the sea at the reefs and seeing the beauty of the creation of God, or as he's studying the body or studying the heavens. Can man see these things and realize there's a God and therefore become without excuse before him? Is that what these verses teach? That's the common interpretation of these verses. Tertullian, the early church father, said, It was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator. I'd agree with that part. The vast majority of mankind, though they have never heard the name of Moses to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. Nature is the teacher, the soul is the pupil. Really? Do men come to know God in any way through looking at nature? What about the scientist who studies various aspects of God's creation? When they see the complexity and the awesomeness of God's creation, do they fall down and worship Yahweh? Well, if they're Christians, they might. But if they're not Christians, they're worshiping the Big Bang Theory. What a lovely explosion we had. Look at all it did. It just, boom, and all this stuff came into being. The late astronomer, Carl Sagan, said the universe is all that ever was and ever will be. As an astronomer, he studied the heavens. He didn't see the glory of God. He didn't see God at all. Julian Huxley, who was an English evolutionary biologist, said, This is all accident. All a matter of chance. No reason, no end, no purpose at all. These men didn't just view creation. They studied it. And they never saw God or His glory. Natural man says the matter of which the universe is made somehow, over billions of years, organizes itself into all that we see without any outside assistance or intelligence. Just blew up and here we go. Wonderful explosion. What is called natural or general revelation, 
will not bring anybody to God. Now listen to this carefully. Just like special revelation won't bring anybody to God. You understand what I'm saying? Listen, if special revelation, if hearing the word of God brought people to Christ, then I would form an assault team. We'd go out and we'd kidnap people. We'd bring them into the church and we'd preach the word of God until they got saved. Then they'd be Christians. They'd forgive us for kidnapping them. And we'd let them go and we'd go out and get another group. And we'd just keep doing that and we'd assault them with the word of God until they became Christians. But here's the problem, people. The only way anybody ever comes to God is if he draws them. John 6, 44. No one can come to me. Okay, you got that? Nobody. Not a few, not some, not many. No one can come to me unless. Here's an exception. Here's the only people that come to God. The Father who sent me draws him. That's the word helkuo. It means to drag by irresistible superiority. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's the only way anybody comes to God. Alright, you're dead to special revelation. You're dead to the word of God unless God gives you life. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man... That's sukakos. That's a man without the Spirit. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. You tell people about the Bible, tell people about God, yeah, whatever, whatever. He can't understand it because they're spiritually appraised. The man without the Spirit cannot appreciate God's glory through the heavens or through special revelation. God must first effectually call a man... Then man can see his glory in creation and in the word. How much do dead men see of the glory of God? None. They just don't. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world through wisdom. Didn't come to know God. These verses destroy the, every variety of natural revelation of natural theology. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Knowledge of God comes only through propositional revelation only to those who are called. Thomas Aquinas taught that Romans 1 was endorsing Aristotle's pagan theory of knowledge called empiricism. But Romans 1 doesn't teach any such thing. It doesn't teach that men learn truth about God or anything else from sensation. Francis Schaeffer warned the church about Thomas Aquinas and nature eating up grace, he called it. By this he meant that if you give natural revelation an epistemological inch, it will displace Scripture. You don't need Scripture anymore. Just look at out that. That's all you need. Look at the mountain. There's a God, right? Can natural men using natural means derive truth from nature? No, they can't. So what are these verses in Romans talking about? Well, verse 18 starts it out, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice that Paul says the wrath of God, this is in the present tense, is being revealed from heaven. Now, to understand this, we need to see the parallelism in language here and structure between verse 17 and 18. In 17, he says God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel. And in verse 18, we see God's wrath is also being revealed in the gospel. Paul's gospel reveals God's covenant faithfulness, 
which involves the announcement that God will judge the covenant breakers and that the agent of this divine judgment is Yeshua. So the gospel not only reveals his righteousness, it reveals his justice, his judgment. It says in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, God made it evident to them. Because here is the reason for the wrath of God. He says, which is known. This is the Greek, ganostas, which means well known. That which is well known about God is evident. Phaneros. It means to make visible, to make known. God made himself known. He made it evident in them. Now here the question is, who's the them? God revealed himself to somebody. Who's the them? Well, in verse 17... Uh, from verses 1 through 17, Paul uses you, referring to the Roman Christians. Then in verse 19, he says them. And in verse 20, he says they. So who did God make visible or known? Now, when I did the study on the book of Romans, I said that this is referring to Israel and only Israel. They only knew God. They were the only ones that God made himself evident to. Well, Now I question that had God only made himself evident to Israel? Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And I asked when we looked at this passage, is it possible that Paul is not talking about the physical creation here? See, since the creation of the world, since he created this world, he made himself known. And I questioned that. And I said, well, I think creation here is not the creation of the world. I think it's talking about Israel. Because the word creation here is katesis, which at times is used of physical creation, but it's also used for mankind. So it's possible that katesis here does not, may not refer to physical creation. I thought it referred to Israel, but I no longer think that. Now I think creation means creation. All right? Since God created the world, He made Himself known. Two things have changed my mind on this, all right? One of them being a new understanding of the Israelite worldview, which we'll talk about in a minute. The other one being a new understanding of the gospel and the stars that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Well, starting with the second view, look at, uh, it says, through what has been made. He's made himself clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. The word made here is poioma, and it means a product, a thing that is made workmanship, it's only used here in one other time in Scripture, and that's in Ephesians 2.10, where Paul says we are his workmanship, poema. We as believers are a direct creation of Yahweh, and so also is this creation, the thing he made. I think what he's referring to here, what he made, I think he's talking about the constellations, the zodiac. I said a couple weeks ago, I believe that the the Zodiac, these are signs that point to Messiah. When you understand the names of the stars, they point to Messiah and His death on the cross. Now, how has God made His eternal power and divine nature clearly seen? He's written it in the stars. The book of Enoch states that an angel revealed the constellations to Enoch. In Enoch chapter 8, verse 1, it lists all the things that the angels taught men. In the very last one, it says... Cochabel, the constellation. So he, this angel taught men about the constellations. Which makes sense because knowledge of the constellations has to come from special revelation because those pictures just are not seen unless you understand the names of the stars. 
Now, the Bible tells us that Yahweh named the stars. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. So the stars all have names. And their names all have meaning. And the star and the constellation names have been handed down from antiquity. This knowledge may have well come from Noah, even from Adam. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages. And that's what's really cool about this. If you look up these star names in different languages, they have different names, same meaning. So you see the meaning of these stars connected. You can go back and you see that you know these people could have understood this, that they'd been taught it. When we look at the ancient names, we see the gospel laid out in the stars. I think this is how the expanse is declaring the work of his hands in Psalm 19. It says, His invisible attributes, His eternal powers, divine nature have been clearly seen. How have they been seen? I think they've been seen in the constellations, in the zodiac. You know, like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, the vault of the heavens declares the story of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, the creator of the universe, to the glory of God. When you know that, but you have to have been taught, but man had this knowledge. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God. This is what really tripped me up in the past. Who was it that knew God? See, in our study of the book of Romans, I said it was Israel and only Israel. Nobody else knew God but Israel. And then as a spoof text, I use this verse. You understand the difference between a proof text and a spoof text? You know, when you got a subject you're trying to defend, you grab verses to try to defend it. That's called proof texting because you're trying to prove what you believe. When they don't really prove what you believe, it's a spoof text. You're hoping someone, you know, and I want you to get this here in Psalm 147. Look what it says. He declares his words to Jacob. That's just another name for Israel. His statutes and ordinance to Israel. Parallelism in Hebrew, saying the same thing, all right? He has not dealt thus with any nation. So Yahweh gave Israel and only Israel his statutes and ordinance. He gave them to no other nation. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But that does not mean he didn't give them to any people. As a nation, Israel was the only nation to receive God's statutes and ordinance. But can you think of anybody else who God might have given some of these things to? How about Adam? Think God had communication with Adam? Adam and Eve knew Yahweh. They walked in fellowship with Him in the garden. They dwelt in Eden, which was the temple of Yahweh. But because of their sin, they got put out of Eden. And I used to believe, and I don't know where I got this from, but all my, almost all my Christian life I believed this. Once Adam and Eve got put out of the garden... That was the end of it. No more communication from Yahweh until Israel. And I viewed those men between Adam and Israel as just dead ignorance of God. They didn't know anything. But even though man has been removed from the garden temple, Yahweh was still communicating with man. Notice three, three very important verses here. Genesis 5.22 Enoch walked with God. 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. They're having such great time of fellowship together. God just says, come on, come with me. Genesis 6, 9, Noah walked with God. So here we got these men walking with God. And this is a very significant phrase. This phrase only occurs three times in the Bible, none in the New Testament. When God walks with men, 
That is a really rare thing. The first occasion of it was in Genesis 3, the Lord God walking in the garden. Adam was in that garden. Adam walked with God. Walking with God depicts a direct divine encounter. A direct divine relationship. Sometimes we think, or at least I did, that the people from Adam to Abraham were ignorant of Yahweh and His ways. But these men walked with God. They knew Him. And you think they didn't talk? You know, Adam was still alive when Noah was born. You think they didn't talk? You think he didn't share? How do you think Noah became a man who walked with God? He had to know about God. He had to hear about God. Adam probably shared about the glories of the garden and the presence of Yahweh and how he messed up and lost all that. Coming to understand Israel's worldview. First of all, understanding the gospel and the stars. Secondly, understanding Israel's worldview is what really changed my view on Romans 1. See, Israel was not the only people to know God. They were the only nation to be given God's ordinance, but they weren't the only people. So let's take a brief look at Israel's worldview. In the creation account, God creates Adam. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, I know there's in, within the prayers community, there's a lot of talk about Adam. Well, Adam is not the first man. He's the first covenant man. I don't buy that. I think Adam was the first man. And I just have a hard time understanding. God created a world, put people on it, and had nothing to do with them. Didn't talk to them. Just let them run around. Had no communication with them. What was the point of creating those people? Just let them run around. And then all of a sudden he decide, I think I'll enter in a covenant. And I'll pick Adam. I just, you know, I got some problems with that. Because I just don't see why he created all those people and just left them alone all that time. You know? Now notice the text says we are created as the image would be better a translation than in the image. This means that we are divine, all of us, we are divine representatives. We're created as His image. We are image bearers. That's why God says no graven images. Why? We are to be His image. People are to see Him in us. We are to represent Him. We are to do what Yahweh wants us to do as if He were physically present with us. And we're telling people, watch us. We will demonstrate to you, Yahweh, our God. How are we doing with that? So Yahweh creates Adam. And according to Job, Adam had access to the divine counsel. See, the Garden of Eden was God's temple. He dwelt there not alone with his divine counsel, his council members, his family. And then God created Adam. Now, the first man, Adam, was in Eden. All right. Here, he says, Job says, Job 15, 7 through 8. He says, were you the first man to be born? Who's he talking about? Adam. Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? Now, there's another verse that makes me think that Adam was the first man. Were you the first one to be born? Were you in in the secret counsel of God? See, Adam had that privilege. He was in Eden. Intimate fellowship with Yahweh. Genesis 3.8 says, They heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with Yahweh. They dwelt in His presence. Eden is where He lives, where He issues His decrees. He is with His heavenly host who existed before humanity. And they're there making decisions. They're there doing things together. And now Adam's brought into that. You know what happens next? Adam's in fellowship. Adam's in the garden. What happens? 
Man's tempted, and he sins. Well, who tempted him, and why? Well, I don't think it was a snake. I think in Genesis 3, we see one of the divine council members, a watcher, tempting man so he could get rid of him. Yahweh is in in this council, in fellowship, and he's got this family. He's got these watchers that are his council, his family. He creates man, and he brings man. He wasn't created in the garden. He created him. He brought him into the garden, and these council members are saying, Hey, what's this? No, we don't want this new family member. Get him out of here. All right? We don't like this guy. And God had made him vice-regent with him. So some of the watchers may not have been too happy about this. Say, what is this man doing in our presence? Genesis 3 1 says, and the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which Yahweh the God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? God didn't say that. Now we see here it was the serpent who tempted him, right? And we know, or what we need to know, is who was this serpent? I believe the serpent was a divine being, was one of the council members, a member, not a member of the animal kingdom, but a member of the divine council. Serpent here is from the Hebrew word nakash, all right, which is most likely a triple entente, all right, which means it has three different meanings um, at one time, all right, triple entente, three meanings at one time. If you take nakash as pointing to the noun, the word would mean serpent. If you take it to mean as a verb, it would mean deceiver. That fits. They both fit, right? Or diviner. As an adjective, it would be bronze or shining one. And see, luminosity is a characteristic of divine beings. When you see beings in Scripture, they're lighting up. There's just glow, all right? Also, in the Hebrew Bible and also in A&E texts, ancient Near Eastern texts, talk about that same thing. Well, this watcher chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by promoting or prompting humans to disobey God. So God would either kill him or kick him out of the garden. That's what he wanted to accomplish. And he did it. So what we have in Genesis 3 is divine being, not an animal, but a throne room guardian, a seraph, serpentine being, one who is part of the council, decides to deceive humanity. To get rid of them. Get the humans out of Eden. Get them out of Yahweh's council. I think the scripture, the why behind this, I think scripture hits at, hints at is jealousy, pride. This is our position. We don't want a newcomer coming in here. All right? I think the scripture hints at that the pseudepigrapha directly teaches it. All right? In a work called The Life of Adam and Eve, it elaborates on the motive and role of Satan in the fall of humankind. Chapter 14 of The Life of Adam and Eve says this, And Michael went out and called to all the angels, Worship the image of God. What's he talking about? Who's the image of God? Adam, right? He's the image of God. As the Lord God has commanded. And Michael himself worshipped first. Then he called me and said, Worship the image of the Lord God. And I answered, It is not for me to worship Adam. Not happening. And since Michael kept urging me to worship, I said to him, Why do you urge me? I will not worship an inferior and younger being than I. I am his senior in the creation. Before he was made, I already I was already made. It is his duty to worship me. But when the angels who were under me heard this, they refused to worship him. And Michael said, Worship the image of God. 
But if you will not worship Him, the Lord God will be angry with you. And I said, if He be angry with me, I will set my seat above the stars of heaven and be like the highest. That sound familiar? Huh? Sound like Isaiah 14? But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will rise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. The devil is seen explaining to Adam in chapter 16 of the life of Adam and Eve. He says this. This is the devil talking to Adam. And the Lord God was angry with me and banished me and my angels from our glory. And on your account, we were expelled from our abode. He's blaming Adam. It's your fault we got kicked out, okay? (laughs) Someone's always blaming somebody else, okay? We were expelled from our abode into the world and hurled to the ground. Straight away, we were overcome with grief. Since we had been robbed of such great glory, they were in the presence of God. And we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. And with guile, I cheated your wife and through her action caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as I have been driven out of my glory. Now, the book of Enoch attributes the temptation of Eve to Gadriel, but here it's attributed to Satan. Now, in Genesis 3, the Nakash, the serpentine, shining one deceiver, was in the Garden of Eden where Yahweh walked. And I think that's what Ezekiel is talking about in Ezekiel 28. He says, you were in Eden. Now, I think this story here, if you read Ezekiel uh, 28, Isaiah 14, they're talking about the kings, but they're talking about the prince, the demonic prince who is behind the king also. All right? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topos, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your setting and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. These stones elsewhere describe the brightness of Yahweh's throne. So whoever this is talking about, they're in Yahweh's temple. They're in the throne room. And they got kicked out of it. This being talked about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they were in Eden. They were a member of the divine council. And this being tempts man and man sins. He falls and he's removed from Yahweh's temple. He's put out of the garden. But then something great happens. God gives a promise. In Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Eve's seed is a human being. A man will come and fix what Adam has done. A deliverer will come through the seed of the woman. Now, who is the seed of the woman according to Paul and Galatians? It's Yeshua, right? He's the seed of the woman. And I believe Then in an attempt to stop the seed of the woman, a group of watchers left heaven. They cohabitated with women in an attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman. We're going to defile this race so the deliverer cannot come through this race. We will corrupt the whole thing. And we see this in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Now it came about when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Here we have sons of God, B'nai Elohim, the watchers, come down, mate with the daughters of men, 
and produce a Nephilim, an offspring that is half human, half divine. Corrupting the human race. All right? These watchers got mankind kicked out of the garden, and now they're trying to keep the Redeemer from bringing man back into the temple. Even though man is removed from the garden temple, Yahweh is still communicating with man. Sometimes we think that people from Adam and Eve were really ignorant of Yahweh and His ways. But some of these men, as we've seen, walked with Yahweh. They knew Him. Look at Genesis 7, 1 through 2. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. That's interesting. You alone, Noah, you're a righteous man in all this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, male and his female. What strikes you interesting in that verse? <laughs> Why is that weird? <laughs> okay, very good, John. How do they know clean and unclean? Wait a minute. We're, we're, the law didn't come till 1,400 years later that de- designate what's clean and what's unclean. So how does no one know what's clean and unclean? Where do you get these designations from? These men knew Yahweh. He had to be communicating. They had to be telling them what he wanted from them. They were in a covenant relationship with him, so he knows what to take. It's interesting how many times we read that and we read, we know what's coming up in Exodus, right? So we just read it back into there and we say, oh, of course they know clean because Moses laid all that out, right? Well, not yet he hadn't. The Bible teaches that Enoch and Noah are Yahweh's prophets, according to Jude and Peter. Look it. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord come with many thousands of his holy ones. So here we see that Enoch is a prophet of God. And we also see this uh, in 2 Peter 2.5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So here we got Enoch and Noah, they're preachers, they're prophets of righteousness, and they're proclaiming the truth of Yahweh. As the earth's population grows, it becomes more and more wicked as a result of the Genesis 3 fall and as a result of the Genesis 6 rebellion of the angels. And man begins to worship the watchers instead of the creator of the watchers. So it's all backwards now, people. And this rebellion of man culminates in the building of a ziggurat at Babel in Genesis 11. And so Yahweh scattered them abroad from there all over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So before this time, they're all speaking one language. So if he's teaching about the stars, guess what? They all know the name of the stars, because they're all speaking the same language. Now as the language is scattered, they still know the star names, but they have a different name for it now. But they still understand its meaning. Their language is scattered. Now, these are times of chaos, all right? Man is trying to worship, and he's building this ziggurat. It was a tower. It was a thing to worship. What they were trying to do was they build this thing high enough, and then the gods would come down. And they built temples next to the ziggurat so the god could come down and come into the temple and they could worship. They're in rebellion against Yahweh, and they're judged. They'll not follow him. So he's tired of them, and he turns them over to lesser deities. Yahweh just turns his back, gives them up, says, here, have these other gods. You like these gods? You want to worship these gods? You think they're so great? Go ahead. You got them. This is a very significant text here in Genesis, and we learn more about it in Deuteronomy 32.8. 
This is Israel's worldview here. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, the nations, okay? He's giving them an inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, you see that the New American here says sons of Israel. This is a bad translation. The English translations based on the traditional Hebrew text of the Tanakh read sons of Israel. But there's a variant reading of this passage. It's based on a third century before Christ translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, the Septuagint, as well as the Hebrew manuscripts of Deuteronomy found at the Dead Sea at Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, based on these older texts, what it says here, it says sons of God. Now, Genesis 10, which is called the Table of Nations, Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 different nations. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So Genesis, chapter 10 of Genesis is the backdrop for Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8 that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew word, root word, separate, parad, are used in both Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Now, the idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported by the ancient book of Jasser. You ever heard of Jasser? Never heard of that ancient book? It's mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says, is it not written in the book of Jasser? It's mentioned in 2 Samuel 1.18. It's written in the book of Jasser. Well, let's look at Jasser 9.31. Don't try to turn in your Bibles. You won't find it. All right. And they built the tower in the city. And they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And, and God said to the 70 angels. Notice there's 70 of them who stood foremost before him to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation at the Tower of Babel. It's important to note that Israel is not listed in the index of nations found in Genesis 10. How come Israel's not listed in those nations? They weren't a nation. They didn't exist at the time. So that's why they can't, it can't say sons of Israel in that text in Deuteronomy 32.8. Therefore, the statement that said God set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of children of Israel is out of context. It doesn't mean that at all. It's sons of God. Now, what happens at Babel is man's disobedience causes Yahweh to divide them up and give them to the lesser gods. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh was done with them. He's done with the people. They just keep turning away from them. No matter what he does for them, they just keep rebelling. They're going away from God. They won't follow him. Man continued to reject Yahweh. They continue to serve these other gods. So Yahweh said, that's it. You can have them. Here, you gods have these nations, you nations, these are your gods. I'm done with all of you. I don't want anything to do with you. What happens next? Genesis 12. God calls Abraham and starts it all over again. I'm going to pick a new people. I'm going to start all over. All right? Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country 
from your relatives and your father's house to the land which I will show you, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so shall you be a blessing. So Yahweh calls Abram and starts all over with a brand new people. He starts a new family. It's interesting, you go from 11, the table of nations, then all of a sudden 12 says, Yahweh said to Abraham. What, did it, what was Abraham's response to this? Verse 4 of Genesis 12 says, Abram went as Yahweh told him to. Now, you often hear that Abraham was just some pagan moon worshiper and a God reached out and called him. Something must be missing here. Because all of a sudden we got Yahweh speaking to Abraham and Abraham says, yep, Yahweh, whatever you want. You think maybe Abraham had a knowledge of Yahweh? People did at that time. All right, so I think he probably did. And, you know, all these nations are walking away. Maybe Abraham was a faithful to follow Yahweh and what he understood about him. Anyway, God calls him and he just goes, yep. He doesn't say, who's Yahweh? Who are you? What do you want? I mean, none of that stuff's in this text. It's like he knew him. I know I'm reading in there, stuff's not there, but I mean, just by the response, something's going on here. Abraham follows him. He's turned over these other nations, lesser gods, who in fact really work for him. They're all under his control. And he's going to someday call the nations back. But he gives them all up and he starts over with a new family. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, the ESV says this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, all right, those are the nations that he's, the 70 nations. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people. They all have a specific location and a specific God according to the number of the sons of God. You got 70 sons of God. You got 70 nations. They're over these nations. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. See, those belong to the other gods. But Jacob, Israel, just another name for Israel, they belong to him. These two verses are fundamental in understanding the worldview of Old Covenant Israel. These verses explain both the existence of foreign pantheons and their inferiority to Yahweh. He gave them over to the nations. Yahweh's portion is Jacob. Commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, John Walton writes this. These verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart unto himself from among all the nations, and Israel is not numbered with them. The nations have their own gods. <laughs> you got it right, Walton. Who are mortal, but they do not have Yahweh. Who alone does not die and is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He's right. Well, it says here in Deuteronomy 32.9 that the Lord's portion, the word portion here is halach, it's a noun related to the word nachal, the word inheritance. Inheritance is nachalah. And verse 9 clearly presents the nation of Israel here called Jacob as an allotted inheritance of Yahweh. Yahweh's inheritance is Israel. Whereas the inheritance of the nations was the sons of God, they got those gods. He got Israel. The point of verse 8 and 9 is that sometime after God separated the people of the earth, at Babel, and he established where on earth they were to be located. He then assigned each of the sovereign, 70 sovereign nations to the fallen sons of God, who were 70 in number. Now, according to Deuteronomy 4.19, this giving up of the nations was a punitive act. All right? 
And beware, do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the hosts of heaven. All right, hosts of heaven just uh, refers to the sentient, created spiritual beings which reside in the heavens. He says, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Now watch what he says. Those which Yahweh your God has allotted to all the people under heaven. Notice here that the hosts of heaven have been allotted to the nations, the peoples. The word allotted, again, is the Hebrew halak, which means to apportion, to assign. Here we are told that Yahweh has assigned the hosts of heaven to the peoples of the earth, meaning not Israelites. Israel is not to worship them. They didn't listen, did they? Speaking of judgment that was to come upon disobedient Israel, Moses said this, All the nations will say, Why has Yahweh done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. God's angry because they broke the covenant. Watch, they went and they served other gods and worshipped them. Now watch, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Hey, weren't you, you weren't supposed to, Israel, those gods are not allotted to you. You have your God. Therefore, the angry of Yahweh burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which was written in the book. These gods that Israel worshipped were not allotted to them. They were allotted to the nations. So at the Tower of Babel, God is done with the nations. They want to follow, they want to serve the watchers. He says, you can have them. He gives the watchers rule over the nations. In chapter 12, he calls Abraham. He starts all over with a new people, a new family. And as we come to the New Testament, we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost that God begins to reclaim the nations that he has rejected to the watchers. And we see in Luke 10.1, Now after this, Yahweh appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. What's the significance of the 70? Remember, the number of the nations listed in the table of nations, Genesis 10, that Yahweh disinherited was 70. And since Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan of reclaiming the nations he disinherited at Babel, the number of disciples listed in Luke 10.1 is significant. It's symbolic. He's saying, I'm reclaiming the 70 with the 70. The number 70 has great theological significance in the context of Canaanite religion. Ancient Ugaric texts provide evidence that the Canaanites believed there were 70 sons of El. But for the Israelites, the number 70 was symbolic of Yahweh's choice of them. Because he gave the 70 to the nations and he chose them. So when the number 70 meant Yahweh took us, we're his nation. Yahweh's inauguration of the kingdom meant that these 70 disinherited nations were being reclaimed. Sending out the 70 disciples expressed a theological message. He said the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. See, in conjunction with the successful mission of the 70, Yeshua declares the expulsion of Satan from God's presence. Satan is being defeated, and the nations are being made part of the kingdom of God. These watchers are being kicked out. They're no longer controlling. All right, back to Romans. 
Look at verse 23 now. In light of that, let's look at these verses. And he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. The darkness and ignorance of unbelieving man resulted in them creating their own gods. The reference to the exchanging the glory of God for images could be an echo of Psalm 106.20, which references Israel's sin in making the golden calf. Or it could go back to the time prior to Genesis 11, when people who knew Yahweh, they're just rejecting Him. They're going after these other gods. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity of their bodies, they might be dishonored among them. This could be Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. They won't, they won't trust Him. They won't follow Him. He just gives them up. Here, you take Him. He's giving up the nations to the 70 watchers. Verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, this is something that is true of men in all ages. Adam did this, so did his descendants, right? Adam, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie. His descendants, those who up to Genesis 11, they did the same thing. So did Israel. People who knew God walked away from Him. I think that teaches us that without the Lord Yeshua as our Savior, none of us will ever Live up to what Yahweh desires for mankind. Apart from Christ, there is absolutely no hope. Without Yeshua, we all tend to worship and serve the creature. So, thank God for a Savior who completely saves. Who brings us back into fellowship. What Adam had lost, Yeshua, the last Adam, restored. And all the forces of hell couldn't stop it. And He brought man back into fellowship with God. And now we're in fellowship. And now we are locked secure into this covenant relationship. We don't have to worry about falling from it. We don't have to worry about losing it. Because we have a Savior who saves completely. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, these things have helped me so much to understand this chapter. I pray that you would give each of us, Lord, the spirit of Bereans, that we would dig this out for ourselves to see if these things are so. Lord, I'm not asking people to believe me because I say this. I'm asking them to be students and to dig it, search it, find out for themselves. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for constantly teaching us, Lord, who you are. We love you, Father. Amen.